being an adolescent is hard enough. It, it's kind of doubly hard when you, you also don't really know how to relate really to people. And I got angry, you know, because anger is just fear, right? So if you see anger, you, you're really watching fear. Uh, it's just the pretty black dress that that fear is wearing. And my, my anger was based on a fear that I would never find a place in the world. podcast where we discuss the impact of comics on society and vice versa we're posted up at the intersection of fiction and reality today and we're just going to press record to see if anything interesting happens i'm your host kevin stoliker from the piney woods north of houston texas i am james Cardell, your co-host from kentucky where it's blistering hot here still and i am sean winningham your other co-host from indiana I don't have anything interesting to say about Indiana right now. <laughs> Shaped like a boot. <laughs> it's, yeah. It just, you know, it looked like someone started to draw the outline and then just kind of like fell asleep. <laughs> and then, zzz- <laughs> All right. Today we are excited to be speaking with Brian Hill. Uh, Brian is a comic author, a screenwriter, and a filmmaker. His current projects are Batman and the Outsiders at DC Comics. He has Angel at Boom Studios and then the upcoming Fallen Angels at Marvel. He's also uh, worked on the Titans uh, series at the DC Universe. Uh, he hails from St. Louis, Missouri, and he currently lives in Los Angeles, California. Brian, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Brian, I'm going to go ahead and jump on in here and ask you kind of our first question right fast that we kind of ask everyone that we bring on. Because uh, as Kevin said, this uh, podcast is about comics and society. So to start with, I'd just like to ask you how comics has um, impacted your life even before you began to write them. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was always into comics. Like, I can't remember a time in my life when I wasn't reading. Uh, and uh yeah, I think, it, you know, some of you guys are, are teachers and you know that like kids tend to gravitate to either English or mathematics. Usually, you know, you can sort of see the aptitude develop. And I was always uh, an English kid. My reading comprehension was always pretty good. I was always interested in storytelling. Uh, so comics were a way for my mother to support that, you know, to keep me reading. Uh, so she would would keep buying comics and bringing them into the house. Um and this was back when they were impulse buys. You know, now you have to budget for them a little bit. But when I was growing up, you know, you could get a Slurpee, a Snickers bar, and like three comic books. Um, and it wasn't like a huge thing you had to think about. So, you know, like grocery store racks and that kind of thing. Um, so I was uh, really, really big into them. And, you know, when you're, when you're growing up and you're trying to figure out yourself, uh, you know, like the thoughts about good and evil, right and wrong, what kind of person you want to be. I think comic book characters uh, spoke to me in a pretty significant way. And I was always a big fan of Bruce Wayne. Uh, that seemed like, okay, when you grow up, you have to be Bruce Wayne, right? That's what being grown up means. Uh, so, yeah, I, I based a lot of my, my like, kind of life goals around these characters. See, my dad died when I was a kid. So I was about seven when he died from cancer. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, I looked to understand manhood through comic book characters, you know, like 
Clark Kent or, or Bruce Wayne or Steve Rogers, you know, like just trying to figure out like, okay, how do you do this whole thing? Uh, so they were pretty uh, formative for me. And then as I grew up and got more into literary stuff, you know, I really took to English and, um, and I didn't know what I was going to be. I thought I was going to be an FBI agent. I didn't plan on being a writer growing up, but I really liked storytelling. And as the work that I was reading in school and outside of school was getting more complex, comics themselves were also getting more complex. You know, this is when Arkham Asylum, you know, was out there and, and, uh, Dark Knight Returns was a, like, it had been out for a while before I'd come to it. But, you know, back in like late eighties, early nineties, when I found it, it was complex. Watchmen was complex. The Vertigo stuff, you know, the Gaiman's work, Alan Moore's work, that sort of thing. So as comics started to develop and evolve, I was evolving and it could have always been uh, a part of my life uh, kind of going forward. But it wasn't until I decided that I, I wanted to go to a film school that uh, I started thinking about, well, it'd be really cool to, to write comics and be part of that business. But it was so opaque back then. I had no idea how you did it. You know, there wasn't really a place to go to learn how to write comic books. So I went to film school and I thought I was going to be a filmmaker and, and, and a film you know, screenwriter and, and all that. And just kind of slipped and fell into comic books because I met some artists when I was in New York uh, that were working on books at the time. And they introduced me to that world a bit. And that's when I started thinking about a profession. Awesome. And so you're right now you're writing for multiple companies, uh, I guess, balancing some work between Marvel and DC and uh, and and others. What what has your experience been maybe for working for each and in, each one individually or, or trying to do all of them at once? Well, you know, it's not so the way it works in, in big two comics, it's not so much company versus company as much as it is character and character, right? Because each character has its own editorial group. And that editorial group has a method, a way of working. Uh, I tend to write, you know, not grounded necessarily, but I tend not to write cosmic characters, for instance. I, I tend not to write blue sky kind of uh, sort of happy-go-lucky tone stuff. You know, I'm a little character-driven, that sort of thing. So those are the, the characters I work on. Those offices are kind of more keyed in to that, that writing style. I, I can't say there's a significant difference just writ large between DC and, and Marvel. Uh, I mean, they're both huge companies, you know, with armies of people working for them. So the experience is somewhat similar uh, between them, both, I would say. I mean, the biggest difference for me is I live in Los Angeles, so DC is closer to me physically. You know, Marvel's in New York, so I don't have face-to-face uh, -face time with the people I work with at Marvel the way I can do in LA. And the Titans offices are the writing offices. They're right across the street from DC Comics. So I've been over to the DC building quite a bit. You know, I, I have drinks with those fellas. Uh, we go out, we grab some food every now and then. The Marvel stuff is largely via email. You know, you know like Will Dennis, when I was working with him on that Killmonger miniseries I wrote, I never met him face-to-face. -face. I'm not even sure I could pick him out of a lineup. You know, it was all emails and a couple phone calls. So I think the proximity, the geography is really the biggest difference between the two for me. Do you ever just have a day to where you're like, okay, I'm running like Batman and the Outsiders today. And then, you know, you got your angel book coming on. You begin to work on like fallen angels a bit. Do you ever like just kind of get your wires crossed and you have to kind of, <laughs> kind of like come back and say, okay, which one am I actually doing today? That's a very good question. Um, well, I'm always writing numerous things like right now. 
besides all the comics I'm writing, I have a screenplay, uh, like a film that I'm a producer on that I wrote that a, a director is attached. I've been doing rewrites for actors on that. I'm adapting a novel for another company. Um, I just turned in a, a horror rewrite for another company. And I have my television writing and I'm developing some new projects at the same time. So I'm always working on a plethora of things. Uh, the way I keep it straight is music. So every project I work on, I build a playlist, like a custom playlist for it. And uh, when I need to get back into that, that mode of thinking, I just start playing the songs in the playlist and then it kind of snaps me into it. Right. And then sometimes I'll even use sense. Like when I'm working on anything Batman related, I have this Tom Ford Ode Wood candle that I burn that to me just feels very Bruce Wayne. You know, it's woody, leathery. It just has that kind of thing, right? So that sets the tone for that. And if I'm working on Fallen Angels, you know, it might be something else. It might burn like a different scent or whatever. So I use sort of the, the ritualization of my space to keep those spaces separate. And if you notice, I try not to work on too many characters that have the same kind of energy, right? Same thematic. Thing, right. So if I'm working on Fallen Angels, for instance, then that's probably going to be the only mutant like property I'm going to work on. You know, I'm going to put like all of that stuff in that space. If I'm working on Batman and the Outsiders, then I wouldn't work on Daredevil simultaneously, for instance. Like I wouldn't, you know, I would reserve that energy for that. So I'm grateful to be able to sort of pick and choose what I'm doing, um, because comics aren't a main revenue source for me. You know, I make most of my money from screenwriting and, and, and television work. So I can pick, you know, the, the characters that I feel like I have the creative focus to work on at the time. And that can change. But, um, but yeah, that's how I kind of keep it organized. I just try to make sure I'm never repeating myself. It sounds like that's an interesting way of, of doing that. That's really, uh, never, yeah, I think that's really neat. You know, Brian, I've been reading your stuff. I've ended up getting started with some of your uh, DC stuff, and mm. then I found Postal, and then you did Killmonger and all that stuff. But American Carnage, for me, was uh, just a very haunting story of what America kind of is today. And I was just kind of wondering, you know, for you personally, how difficult was it to write that story and kind of what had to go into telling that Oh, well, you know, the, it all started because I, I wanted to do a crime story because I had to I mean, Postal was, Postal is a crime story, but Postal is a crime story in this fictional, uh, Northwestern kind of town. And I wanted to do something more metropolitan, you know, uh, I mean, like the living in downtown LA, I'm used to the concrete and the, and the everlasting city lights and all that stuff. So I wanted to kind of capture that feel. Um, and then things were just getting so crazy in the world. You know, uh, like all of the back and forth and it was dripping over into comics and it, it just seemed like everything was getting really us versus that in a lot of ways. You know, yeah, the, the, the world seemed to be splitting into tribes, you know, tribes upon tribes upon tribes. And that disturbed me because I felt like we were doing better than that for a little while. And it seems like we've regressed into this tribal mindset again. And I don't think that's, that's a good thing. You know, I think, um, one of America's strengths is the diversity of its populace, but the, the ability of that populace to work together towards common goals, you know, and it seems like we're drifting away from that. And I've, even though I'm a, I'm a black writer, you know, black filmmaker, creator, whatever, I, I don't look through everything through a prism of race. Um, I, you know, this is not how I live my life. And that's not how most black people I know live their lives, honestly. Uh, so I felt like, well, I could try to capture some of this stuff, but I need to do some research. 
Um, cause I don't want to, I don't want to just get in the soapbox and tell people what they already know. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing interesting there. It's, if you're, if you're just preaching to the choir, basically. And that didn't seem like that would be worth doing. Certainly not worth trying to get published. So I started doing some, some research and talked to some people in some white supremacist movements. Uh, first I would have like a fake name on a message board and, and I, and I would start there. And then I reached out to some of my friends that are in law enforcement and, you know, ACLU friends and said, Hey, is there anybody that's a former member that you can introduce me to? And then I would meet with those folks and get their stories. And then I would ask them, is there anybody who's currently in the movement that I can speak to that, you know, um, that would be relatively safe. You know, I didn't talk to the Aryan Brotherhood because they're not interested in my comic book, but, uh, uh, I did talk to some people that were in the movement, right? And uh, I've always been pretty good about being able to divorce my emotion from things. You know, it's very hard to trigger me. Uh, I'm not easily riled up. So, you know, I could talk to people and at first you would get the, the brochure stuff, almost like folks wanted to see if they could push my buttons. And then once they realized that they couldn't push my buttons, I would get personal stories about how they developed this mindset, you know, where they started and where they came from. Uh, and then I had a friend of mine, uh, a grade school friend of mine, um, around those years, uh, growing up that became a skinhead. Uh, and that was, you know, something that was like, whoa, 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 I, I knew you, you know, I knew your family. You know, how that? Wow. And then I talked to his family about that. And then I, you know, I got a meeting with that person and spoke with them, you know, in a place where we were mutually safe and all that. So all of that stuff became, uh, what American carnage ultimately was. But I didn't know from the beginning that it was going to be a comic book. I just knew I'd find a project in it. Maybe it's a screenplay. Maybe it's a novel. I don't know. What this is. And Mark Doyle reached out to me uh, and asked me if I had something for the Vertigo 25th anniversary thing. They wanted to put out new books. Um, and I told him, ooh, Vertigo is like magical realism. And I don't have any of that. I mean, a Vertigo story is like, what if evil elves were cocaine dealers <laughs> and a werewolf was a FBI agent trying to catch him, you know, or something like that. Right. Mm. If you don't have one of those stories working right now, I'm going to steal that. Yeah, go ahead, man. It's all you. It's all you. And, and I was like, yeah, I don't really have a thing like that, but I have this crime thing. If you're looking for an Azarello esque kind of deal, um, cause I've always been a huge fan of Brian's work and he was very kind to me when I started working in comics. So I sent them the American Carnage uh, kind of brief and expected them to be like, hell no, you know, because it has all of the words in it. As a story, I use all of the words, right? Um, but they were really supportive and they wanted to get behind it. And so I was like, all right, well, let's go ahead and see if we can get this going. And then we got Leandro to be a part of it. And he's brilliant. And then Dean White doing the colors and Pat Rousseau doing the letters. Uh, and I'm really proud, you know, of that book. You know, it's, it's, we were grouped in with uh, a bunch of books that I think were kind of aiming at being socially conscious, but I think American Carnage was a little different because it didn't tell the reader to have a point of view. You know, it sort of presented the world as it was and the characters were all very flawed. And, and I, I liked all the other books, not slight to any of the other books, but. I just felt like it was important that this not be a book about perfect liberals going up against horrible conservatives. Because when you're talking about violent extremist movements, you've left politics at that point. Politics might be the dress that they wear, but 
the the source of that stuff is is much deeper than that. You know, it gets into basic negative human emotions and 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 those sorts of things. So yeah, yeah. Um, I was just really grateful that Vertigo was willing to publish it, and I was proud of what we were able to accomplish with that story. So, Brian, for our audience, can you share with us a little bit about what American Carnage is about? Sure. American Carnage is a modern-day crime thriller set in Los Angeles uh, about the murder of an FBI agent. There was an FBI agent that was investigating a white supremacist organization, and he was found killed, presumably by them. The FBI, or more specifically, a member of the FBI, suspects that this murder is tied to this independent politician, a charismatic man named Gwen Morgan, uh, who on the surface seems like uh, maybe an opportunist, but not necessarily a sociopath. But this FBI agent is convinced that he is, and she needs to get next to him and understand his organization. So she reaches out to a former FBI agent who was once the best undercover agent they had, who's gone through some tough times, uh, who's half black, but can appear white. And she implores him to go undercover and to win Morgan's organization to discover the truth. And what follows from there is a messy, violent, sexy, challenging uh, sort of story about, you know, going through the different levels of psychological hell to find a devil and wondering what that journey has done to you by the time you get to its gooey center. Man. Great. Thank you. I want That's you, perfect. Brian, I want you to like, uh, write my introduction for the next time I present at a professional conference. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I used to do some corporate speaking stuff back in the day. Like when you're a writer, you got to do whatever hustle you can do. So one of the things I used to do is I used to go to the corporate retreats. And I would speak to uh, companies about how to use narrative structure for their communications and how to approach things mythologically. And that was putting money in my pocket for a number of years before I started to, you know, get my uh, my my writing career underway. I, I kind of want to have a, a magnet that says, you know, kind of like I wish uh, uh, Morgan Freeman narrated my life. I, I want one for Brian Hill. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I just I, he had me at gooey center because there's nothing, there's no better adjective for me than that. So right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta say, Brian, um, I think you captured that really well. I, I read the first issue of American Carnage, and the one thing that's oh, that, thank uh, you. Yeah, you're welcome. And, and and the one thing that struck me that I was just like. You know, I I have to read more of this, and unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to do that. But one of the main characters in the story that is asked to go in and infiltrate the campaign was here. You read about the you know backstory about how he was a was an FBI agent. Is that what he was? Or yeah, 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 an FBI agent. And you know, the history was that it, it reflects the Black Lives Matter movement where black African-American kids are getting uh, shot and they're unarmed and things like that. So when I read that, I was just like, okay, this is kind of setting that up. But then you find out that the agent is also half black. And so it puts a different perspective. I think you hit that right on the heads that, you know, this story is just like, okay, this is not a black and white kind of world that we're reading into, which is really reflective of the world that we live in. So I thought you did a great job of that. And that's what made me want to read more about this because it really does get you thinking and challenging about diving a little bit deeper into. So what does this all mean, basically, as we're reading into it? Yeah. Well, thank you, man. It's, you know, what I, what I strive for as a writer is for the work to have longevity, 
right? For the work to be relevant five years from now, 10 years from now, because the storytelling is good, because the characters are interesting. And I didn't want the book to be, you know, even though I have the kitschy American Carnage title, it's not like Brian Hill versus Donald Trump. Right. You know, like that's not what it is, right? Because whether he wins re-election or not, he's only going to be president for either this term or four more years, and then he won't be president anymore. And right. then all of the anti-Trump stuff won't be relevant because he won't be president. And then 35 years from now, if you read some stuff like that, you'd be like, why is this angry orange guy and all this stuff from 2019, you know? Um, and and I, didn't, I didn't want the work to have like, you know, a, a short shelf life. I didn't want it just to be reactionary. Uh, and ultimately, it's a crime story, right? You know, it's a crime story set in this very kind of hot button milieu. That is true. But American Carnage, first and foremost, is a crime story. And none of the characters are perfect, you know, because no one's perfect in life. And all of the issues are messy and complicated because those issues are messy and complicated. You know, too many times I think on, on social media, uh, we'll, we'll see people that, that try to take this hugely complex, multi-layered thing and boil it down into 140 characters. And this is how you do that. It's like, no, <laughs> no, it's, it, it, there's degrees and it's weird. And people have had strange dimensions, you know, that you have to wrestle with, you know, and, and I'm concerned a little bit about us, not as people, as a society, not embracing complexity, you know, whether, whether you're on the left or the right or wherever you are, right. It's if you're always looking for the simplest solution, you're oftentimes not going to find the best one, mm-hmm. right? Um, and in my work, especially work that's somewhat confrontational, uh, I, I never wanted to be simple. You know, I didn't want a hero that had no flaws. I didn't want villains that had no virtues. You know, I, I, I wanted the book to be this sort of weird thing where you read it and you're like, ooh, I hate what they're talking about. But that panel, they actually made a little sense. Hmm. You know what I mean? Or I like this guy. I like this hero. I want him to do what he's going to do, but ooh, he did something I don't think I agree with. Right. You know, like that's the kind of storytelling I get excited right. about. Um, let's jump back into some, uh, some of the other projects that you've, uh, you've got going on. You mentioned earlier that you wrote, uh, a Killmonger series. Uh, and you've said before that that's probably the comic that has the most of you, uh, in it. And, and why, why do you say that? Hmm. Well, you know, my, my Killmonger series was, uh, like an origin story of Killmonger of sorts, um, that Marvel wanted to write. It's a mini series that's about Eric Killmonger becoming the Killmonger villain that we, you know, know from the Black Panther mythos. Well, originally when they asked me if I wanted to do it, I wasn't sure because I didn't want to write something that was just a cash in because Black Panther made a billion dollars. So we're just going to make books based on all the characters we can, right? That didn't seem like a, a fun thing to do. And I also didn't know how to do that well. But when I talked to Will Dennis over at Marvel, my editor, he was very supportive of me trying to you know, make it something interesting, taking a few risks. So I, I had to kind of reach back to the difficulties I had growing up, uh, figuring out who I was and my place in the world. I was a scholarship kid growing up. So I was very poor. Um, but I did get a scholarship to a pretty prestigious high school in St. Louis. And I was one of the few black students at the high school. And I was caught between so many different worlds. You know, I was caught between my working class origins and 
going to school with the princes and princesses of industry of Missouri. You know, I was kind of caught between my understanding of of black culture and their understanding of black culture and my family's understanding of black culture and all of that stuff. Being an adolescent is hard enough. It, it's kind of doubly hard when you, you also don't really know how to relate really to people. And I got angry, you know, because anger is just fear, right? So if you see anger, you, you're really watching fear. Uh, it's just the pretty black dress that, that fear is wearing. And my, my anger was based on a fear that I would never find a place in the world. And I looked at Eric and, you know, you see the bitterness that he has because T'Challa and Wakanda, uh, you know, kind of abandoned him, you know, and, and he's, he's looked at them and said, well, you've been complacent in the face of all of this suffering. You know, you don't deserve that kingdom and T'Challa doesn't deserve to be king. But I had to explore that and get a little deeper than that. And didn't, didn't want him to just be an angry young man. And I also didn't want him to be like a one note big. I wanted, you know, I wanted him to have like a richness to it. Uh, it's almost like he's, he's what happens to a young, brilliant, talented man when he's never had a guiding figure in his life that he could trust. And when you have to grow up like that, you learn how to survive. And whatever helps you survive is how you're going to operate in the world. And oftentimes, that means you want to hit first and you want to hit hard enough that they don't want to hit second. And it can get very self-destructive. And I didn't have a paternal role figure in my life in a day-to-day way. I mean, I had, you know, I had, you know, uncles and family members that stopped in and checked in and, you know, and all that. But I certainly had some self-destructive urges. Um, Luckily, I had other people that were good influences that pulled me away from that kind of thing. English teachers that took an investment into me, you know, and, and other folks still growing, growing up that were helpful. Even the parents of some of the kids that I went to high school with who were very different than I was. I mean, we're talking about staunch, conservative, old money, like Illuminati people. Right? <laughs> you know, like, like they were, they were helpful. You know, they, they kind of recognized like, Hey, uh, you know, uh, this kid could go one way or another way. So maybe we could step in and introduce him to some things and give him some positive influences. So uh, Killmonger is really a story about what if a person just never had any of those things and all they had was what they trusted and what they trusted was rage. And it, it is about the power that rage can give you because it is an actual power it can give you. But it's also about how that power, that, that anger always ends up turning around and coming back to you and puts you in a cycle you know, of, of loss and anger and, and lashing out and destruction and then loss again and all that. So, yeah, you know, in that, that book, that miniseries, and Juan Ferreira did the art and his art is, is brilliant. It's amazing. I really wrote that almost like this is something that I could have been helped by when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old. Uh, and my hope was that there might be some kids out there that saw Black Panther that read comic books and identified kind of with Killmonger or, or that world and, and what have you. And maybe they'll read this and maybe maybe this will connect with them and they can get some experience. I'm not going to say wisdom because I am not wise, but maybe they can get a little bit of my experience to help them negotiate those emotions that I felt like I understood very well. That's great. I will tell you, Brian, when I saw uh, Killmonger out in previews and I saw your name attached right there, I'm like, yes. And then I saw Juan was going to do the artwork. And I've kind of gotten to know Juan over the last uh, few years. I'm like, oh, God, it's happening now. Like when you get like a <laughs> uh, writer that you really enjoy everything they put out and then you have an artist that you love to just working on a book together. Oh, man, it that was just 
amazing for me personally for that. So uh, loved it. Well, it was, it was amazing for me too. I mean, Juan's art is amazing. He's just a brilliant mind. And I like intense stuff. You know, I went, I, I stayed with comics because comics were the most accessible form of intense visual narratives when I was growing up. You know, they were always a little extra compared to movies and television. Um, and frankly, as Hollywood has begun to adopt comics, the comics themselves have gotten a little tamer, I think, by and large. You know, um, the, the kind of extremity of storytelling that you would just see routinely in comics. Uh, you don't really see that as much anymore. You know, like Magneto ripping the adamantium off of Wolverine's skeleton. You know, like things like that. Like, it would just be this super adrenalized deal. Uh, and Juan has so much passion in his work. Uh, and he's such a strong visual storyteller. I would write scripts, but I would tell him, don't like treat this as, as biblical. It's not like I'm breaking it up into panels. So I know I'm not putting too much on a page for you. Mm. But if you see a place where you want less panels, more panels, you want to turn this into a DPS, do all of that. So all of those stylistic things that you see happening in that miniseries, that's all Juan's thought process. You know, like if you see like a double page spread where Eric comes into a room and guns down a bunch of people and it's all, it's all one. That wasn't me in the script. I just kind of paneled it out normally. And then he really invented all of that. And there's so many brilliant choices that he makes over the course of that thing. Um, just how to use the panel layout and, and how to direct a reader's eye across the page, uh, in, in innovative ways, you know, um, I really had a joy working with him. People ask me all the time if I would go back and write more Killmonger. And the answer I always give is yes, but I would only do it if Juan was doing it. Love that. That's great. You know, Brian, though, just to be 100% honest, though, I buy pretty much, I mean, I buy everything that you put out now. And when I saw that you were doing the um, Angel book, my um, LCS could not get it. So I had to go buy those digitally as they came out. And I was a bit bummed because I like the actual physical book. But just everything you've been putting out, just the research that you put into it, you know, all the influences that you have, just phenomenal. I just appreciate that so much. It's, uh, well, one, I very much appreciate that. You know, like, I'll tell you what, man, like, you know, I got started with screenwriting. That was like the first check I got was for that Dolph Lundgren movie I were, worked on way back in the day, right? Um, but the thing about screenwriting is even when you saw a screenplay, there's no guarantee it's going to get made. Like seven people in the world might read it. Uh, you know, you make, you make a decent amount of money from it, but it sort of lives in a vacuum until it doesn't. But most of them live in a vacuum. Most scripts that get sold don't get made. Comics... You're writing things and you know they're going to get out there and they're going to get read. And it's incredibly humbling to know that people are spending their money on a book that you wrote, that they're going to their comic book store, you know, with whatever budget they have to buy comics. And part of that budget goes to the work that you do. It matters very much to me, you know, that, that people get value out of this work. I don't take any of that stuff for granted. Um, and it's, it's something that I was surprised at how welcoming and embracing comic book readers have been uh to to my work and how they've supported me and and talked about me online and helped spread awareness uh for my work and so uh i try to be very choosy about what i do because i want to make sure that if someone does see my name on something they know that that book mattered to me it wasn't just a piece of business it wasn't just oh someone offered me a thing and i'll do a thing like you know even my one shots i just did a um not just, but recently it came out. I did a, a Strike Force 
War of the Realms one shot with the milieu for Marvel. You know, it's just a one shot part of an ongoing event thing. But I tried to put as much soul as that as I could. You know, wrote Frank Castle, Blade that's in there, She Hulk, all that stuff. And you know, I try to make them the whole experiences. That's why uh, you don't you don't see me like chasing a lot of things out there. You don't see me trying to write as many books as I can because there's a limit to how much of that stuff you can do well. And I never want someone to wonder, oh, is this is this a real Brian Hill book? Or is this just like something he did? You know, I always want my name right. to mean something for people that enjoy the work. Yeah, that's Great. that's that's perfect. That's one of the things that I tell my kids in my classroom. Like, if you're going to put your name on something, you it, it needs to mean something. Well, let me tell you, man. You never know what will speak to someone. You yeah. know, I don't go to a lot of conventions because my my schedule doesn't allow me to travel. Um, I, I'll be at New York Con upcoming uh, this this October. And I, I didn't even get to Comic-Con this year because of the Titan schedule. But when I, when I go and I do signings, people will bring up, like bring like the most random things, you know, they'll bring up like a one shot thing I did for Top Cow, or they'll mention some moment in, uh, in a book that I hadn't really thought about since I, I had written it, but it really mattered to them because at a time in their life, when they read that scene, such and such character said such and such to so-and-so, and that really spoke to them. So the things that you think are important might not be the things that resonate with people the most. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be something um, that you think is kind of innocuous or, or oh, well, this is a cool moment. This is a cool book. I do that. But that might be somebody's cherished thing. It's dog-eared and faded in their backpack because they read it when they go through those dark times, right? So when, when that happens to you uh, at a convention or, you know, you get a DM from somebody who knows a scene that you wrote that you wrote chapter and verse, it reminds you of the responsibility I think you have to the readership um, to uh, to do the best you can. I was just talking to Donnie Case about this because Donnie's a friend of mine, um, and you know he's so good at giving a damn, you know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why he's so successful is he genuinely cares about everything that he's putting out, and I try to do the same. Well, Matt. You, I mean, you had you had me earlier when you uh, when you said uh, that anger is the is the is the sexy black dress that fear wears, and like I'm like that hit me, and I'm like, man, I probably should go apologize to some people. You know, like you know, you asked me about comics and how they related to me growing up. Well, a lot of the ideas that I started to form, you know, it was from a conversation that Alfred had with Bruce Wayne. It was from Jor-El talking to Kal-El. It was Peter stuck to a wall, remembering something Uncle Ben or Aunt May had told him. Uh, you know, those, those writers back in the day, and, and writers now too, um, put a lot of personal truth in there. And, and those things matter. Mythology matters in that way. You know, uh, you think about Yoda and try not, you know, do or do not, there is no try. Mm-hmm. Those things matter, right? So I try to, I don't, again, I, I'm not wise, but I have some experience. I try to put that stuff in there. And I think about anger and its relationship to fear a lot because there's so much anger around us all the time. And anger can read like bravado sometimes. But if you don't understand that every time somebody is attacking something, they're actually defending something else. One of the better ways to manage your anger and the anger of other people is to understand one, why am I feeling vulnerable now? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like you look at when like a cobra gets scared, it flares up and hisses. Right. 
You know, when a, when a cat hisses, it's scared. When a dog growls, it's scared. So I think about like, why am I feeling threatened? Mm-hmm. What about the situ- situation's threatening me? And then you realize most of the time that you're not actually being threatened. You just haven't thought it through, right? And then you think it through and you're like, you know what? I'm not angry anymore because I'm actually not under attack. And it's the same thing if somebody attacks you, if it's unjustified. Instead of reacting to their anger, think about why are they feeling this way right now? And what can I do to make them not feel threatened so I can really get to the bottom of why this moment is happening? Mm -hmm. And that's what I do online. That's why you don't see me yelling at people on Twitter or or pontificating in that way. Because anytime somebody says something rude to me, I know they're not having a good day. Because if you were having a good day, you wouldn't be rude to somebody on the internet. So I give you a chance to have a better day. And then if you don't want to take it, I just ignore you. But I'm not going to feed into it. I'm not going to ever be the guy that made your day worse. You know, like that's kind of my thing. Like if you if you're intent on being being toxic, well, that's a choice. It's cool. But I'm still not going to be a person that makes your day worse. And I'll you know if I have the time, if I'm at my desk and I'm been talking to people, I'll talk to people. But yeah, I think about it because a lot of what we do is react. We react so fast to things, and it can perpetuate some negative stuff. And at some point, somebody in that process has to not be reactive in that way so that the whole thing doesn't snowball and snowball and snowball. Brian, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Uh, before we go, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you on social media and uh, about any upcoming projects that you are looking forward to? For sure. So, uh, well, for one, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Two. Uh, Twitter is probably the best way to reach me. Uh, so it's at Brian Edward Hill. That's Brian with a Y at Brian Edward Hill on Twitter. I keep my DMs open. So if you have writing questions or something like that, I answer them all the time, fire them off there. My Instagram is Brian E Hill, but that's more of like my art stuff. So it's like a lot of portrait photography and that kind of thing. Not very comic book related stuff on there. But if you're curious, feel free to visit there and add me there. I have Batman and the Outsiders uh, for DC Comics is ongoing. Uh, Fallen Angels as part of Jonathan Hickman's brilliant House of X initiative. Uh, the first issue debuts in November. Angel, based on the Joss Whedon television series for Boom Studios, uh, is monthly now, and that is ongoing. And I have uh, a few more projects I can't talk about at the moment, but if you follow me on social media the moment I can, um, you'll hear about those in comics. Uh, in other media... I am one of the writers of Titans. I've been on the show since the beginning. And season two is broadcasting now on the DC Universe platform. So make sure you check that out. Um, and, and yeah, I think that's pretty much all I can talk about at the moment. But yeah, follow me on social media. And when I can let out more truth, you'll see it there first. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of The Caption Life. We hope you enjoyed listening to us. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out and tag us in your posts.